Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Now, here's your host, John Murphy. Welcome, welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. My name is John Murphy, the play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Bills. And this is the podcast where we talk a lot about Bills football, a lot about the NFL in general, and a little bit about beer. Our guest this week on the podcast is a good friend, Pro Football Hall of Famer Bill Polian. I've known him for decades now. He has just written a new book, issued a new book with my buddy Vic Carucci. The book is called Super Bowl Blueprints. Hall of Famers reveal their keys to football's great dynasties. It's an oral history, a lot of Bill's information in there. I think any Bill's fan would find it really fun to read. But there's also stuff about the Steelers and the Cowboys and the 49ers and all of the great dynasties, the Cowboys, all of the great dynasties of the last couple of decades in the NFL. It's an oral history with some of the key figures in those dynasties talking about what made them uh, work, what made it tick for them. Super Bowl dynasties, or Super Bowl blueprints, the name of the book. We're going to talk with Bill Polian about that in just a couple of minutes here on the podcast. It's been a couple of weeks since our last podcast. The Bills have been very busy. A number of coaching staff changes uh, after a couple of years of really no changes at all. They've made some big moves. Is it a breath of fresh air? I think so. I really do. Not that they needed uh, necessarily to make some of these changes, but fresh air with competent people cannot hurt at all. It is tough to lose Brian Dable. The Bills' offensive coordinator the last uh, several years, now the new head coach of the New York Giants. I wish him well. He's a great guy, Western New York native, obviously. He fit right in, was very much at home with the Buffalo Bills, but it's time for him to move on and see uh, if he can be a head coach. And I really look forward to watching uh, Brian Dable succeed as the head coach of the Giants. You know, there's been some chatter over the last week or two about potential uh, disagreements that he may have had with Sean McDermott about the focus of the offense during the course of the season. You know, over four years, I think that happens, right? That an offensive coordinator and a head coach, especially a defensive-minded head coach, might have disagreements, might have a different approach to certain things. I'm certain that happened. I don't think it was that serious. I really don't. I think it's expected that they would have a different take on things. Brian has been around the league long enough, and you would think he would want to assert some measure of authority over what the Bills were doing, especially on the offensive side of the ball. So I don't dispute the fact that the two of them disagreed, that it wasn't a, a perfect uh, relationship, but I don't think it was ever got to it ever got to the serious point. And I'm just excited that Dable gets a chance to uh, strike out on his own with the New York Giants now. A parting of ways with special teams coach Heath Farwell. Now, this one I think is very interesting. Uh, Three good years for Heath Farwell with the Bills. Three really good years. He did a good job. And you can't help but think how much the playoff loss at Kansas City factored into it. The end of the game. McDermott talking about the last 13 seconds and the decision to kick it into the end zone for the touchback. Chiefs started from there 25, moved it downfield, got the game-tying field goal, won in an overtime. McDermott doesn't talk about it much. He doesn't get explicit. He keeps talking about execution. And he does say that that includes himself and the coaching staff, I think, uh, by inference. That means that they didn't really execute. I think it means they didn't really execute what they wanted to do. Maybe McDermott wanted to drop a kickoff short of the end zone, as many people said they should have. And maybe the chance the Chiefs would be forced to spend an extra second or two, with only 13 on the clock, uh, maybe McDermott wanted to, but the message somehow didn't make it to uh, the kicker, Tyler Bass. He kicked it into the end zone. Uh, no time expired. They started at their 25. A couple of plays later, they're lined up for the game-tying uh, field goal, and they send it to overtime and win it in overtime. Now, we're talking about a couple seconds here, right? 
if he leaves it short of the end zone, you would think the Chiefs would down it right away and start from wherever, somewhere inside the 25, inside the 20 maybe. How big a factor was it in the loss? I got to say, I don't think it's as big as the defense that they played at the end of regulation. The defense that allowed the Chiefs to get in position to take that field goal try and tie it up. I think that was even a bigger factor than the decision to kick it into the end zone. And and just the fact that there was a bad execution, as McDermott says, on the part of what uh, was transmitted to what uh, you would think transmitted to Heath Farwell and failed to get the message across to Tyler Bass, maybe that was it. I don't know. We're just speculating here because McDermott isn't saying much uh, overtly about what happened. But the fact that they have replaced Heath Farwell I think indicates that there was an issue there. And it could not just have been, I wouldn't think, with that one kickoff, but that was a major factor. Um, So big changes in the coaching staff. Matt Smiley takes over as special teams coordinator after he has been an assistant special teams coordinator for a couple of years. Matt Smiley, I think, is capable and will be a good special teams coordinator for the Bills. Um, He's been with the Bills for five years. He knows the organization, knows his personnel. I think it'll be a good promotion for him. Another promotion, Ken Dorsey promoted to offensive coordinator with Dave Ogon. Very interesting. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what sort of an offense you run. Probably not major changes in the way they run offense. I still think there'll be a passing-focused offense, but there will be tweaks. I don't think he'll change the uh, terminology much, but there will be tweaks as uh, Dorsey takes over for Brian Dable and uh, creates his own offense. A new offensive line coach coming in. Bobby Johnson is gone, leaves Buffalo after three seasons to join Dable with the Giants. So new old offensive line coach Aaron Cromer is back to coach the line. He had the same job on Rex Ryan's staff. Very highly regarded offensive line coach. Very um, just professional. I know he had the incident off the field a couple of years ago, but he always struck me in his short tenure and his first stint with Buffalo as a very professional coach, a very professional approach to his job. And I think Aaron Cromer is a, is a good hire for Sean McDermott's staff. I really believe that. A new quarterback coach added, and I think this one is interesting too. Joe Brady, former LSU assistant, a brief stint there, uh, promoted through the ranks and was the Carolina Panthers' offensive coordinator until he lost his job last uh, November. Joe Brady is going to be interesting to see what he, uh, what sort of, what sort of uh, camaraderie he develops with Josh Allen and whoever else is in that quarterback room. You would think the Bills have two other spots to fill in that quarterback room, and Joe Brady, I think, will have some say in what the Bills do offensively. I think he's kind of an up-and-coming guy, despite his setback at Carolina last fall. I think that's a good hire as well, and I'm really eager to see how much of a say he has in the offense and what he has to offer Josh Allen. So Joe Brady will be interesting to watch. Bob Babich retires. He was the Bills linebacker coach for the last five years. His son Bobby, on the Bills staff for five years, moves from safeties coach to linebackers. Good promotion for a good guy there. Jim Salgado, another good guy, takes over as safeties coach. He's been the Bills' Nichols coach for the last several years. John Butler, who's been around with the Bills for a couple years now, Moves up a little bit. He was defensive backs coach. He'll take that on as well as the defensive uh, passing game coordinator. So those are some of the some of the changes. There were others as too. In all, eight new hires, uh, some fresh blood for the Bills, I think, in the coaching staff, and maybe a slightly different approach. I mean, look, you don't want to redo everything. They were very successful the last couple of years, but I don't think any of these changes are going to hurt their uh, ability to uh, move forward, and I think they could help to get some uh, fresh air on the coaching staff. The NFL Combine is this week. The Bills digging into draft prospects. They offer very few clues as to what they're looking at. you got to believe cornerbacks is a big issue with 
Levi Wallace, a free agent, and Tredavious White coming off surgery. you got to think defensive line, pass rushers in particular, is going to be an area of interest for the Bills with the age on Mario Addison and Jerry uh, Hughes, regardless of whether they elect to come back or not. I think Star Lotulale's future in Buffalo is kind of up in the air, so maybe the interior of the defensive line is a factor for the uh, Bills as well. And I really think the interior of the offensive line, they need some new faces at guard, some fresh blood at guard. So those would be the areas I would look at. We'll talk more about the combine when it's over uh, next week. A lot of talk publicly in the media about wide receivers, about running backs, tight ends for the Bills. I don't think any of those areas are a real pressing need for the Bills. I wouldn't... uh, Use an early round pick. I mean, the Bills have nine picks uh, in the seven rounds of the draft. Uh, they had the 25th pick in the first round. I'd be surprised if that pick goes for a wide receiver, a running back, or a tight end, but we'll see. You never know. Bills are getting ready to reset for 2022, as is the entire NFL. Franchises rearming, rebuilding. They've got their coaching staff set. Now they're ready to add to the playing ranks. We're going to talk in a moment here to a man who did that at a Hall of Fame level in the NFL, in Buffalo, in Carolina, and in Indianapolis. He, in fact, won a Super Bowl in Indianapolis. Bill Polian, we'll talk with him about his new book, Super Bowl Blueprints. That's coming up next right here on the podcast. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. A very special guest on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff this week, Bill Polian, former Bills general manager, former Carolina Panthers GM, GM and president of the Indianapolis Colts, won Super Bowl 41 with the Colts. He is a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, elected in 2015, and he's the author of a new book, Super Bowl Blueprints. Uh, uh, Bill Polian with his co-author, Vic Carucci, published by Triumph Book. Hall of Famers reveal the keys to football's great dynasties. Bill, it is great to catch up with you. Good to see you again. Well, good to see you, Murph. Great to be with you. The book is oral history, right? You let the guys who made these great dynasties talk about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was uh, the, the publishers came to Vic and I and said, you have another book in you. And we, we, we sort of thought, yes, OK. And we batted around a number of ideas. And, and, and one of the ideas that clicked was that uh, you go behind the scenes and talk to the people who were involved in, in, in various games and seasons. And so uh, what, what started out to be a, an exploratory book turned out to be an oral history, which was amazing. And we, we, we allotted uh, uh, about an hour for each interview, and there wasn't one that went uh, shorter than ninety minutes. <laughs> so every every Vic had a heck of a job yeah. trying to edit it, but it was uh, it, they were anxious to talk. There there are many things in there that people have never heard before. Um, some astounding, some heartwarming, some uh, bringing tears to your eyes. It's it's really a an amazing, uh, an amazing experience. And I learned a lot from it. It was, it was great. The book, uh, Super Bowl Blueprint, and you talked to a number of uh, key players in all of these great dynasties from the Steelers and, and the 49ers, the Cowboys, the, the, uh, Gi- the Giants, uh, uh, the Colts, where you spent a lot of time with, and of course the Buffalo Bills. And you spent a lot of time talking to one of the great all-time uh, tellers of stories, uh, Marv Levy. Um, you, you mentioned, you say Levy had unique coaching talents what made him unique well first of all the best teacher along with tony dungy that i've ever been around they're head and shoulders above everybody else um and i think ultimately that's what makes a great coach secondly incredible communication skills and third 
great, great empathy for the players and, and, and understanding of what he was asking them to do and understanding what they went through. He bonded with them from the day that he, literally the day he walked in the building. Uh, I think we recount in the book, uh, he came in and uh, we, we'd just been through the Hank Bullis situation and things were, there. to say they were ruffled feathers is, mm-hmm. is an understatement by, yeah. by a lot. You lived through it too. And uh, I introduced him and just gave his biography and he stood up there and he spoke for less than 10 minutes. And at the end he said, uh, you know, we're gonna, I have three rules, be on time, be a good citizen and, and give a hundred percent in everything you do. He said, let's go beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. The players stood up and applauded. He got a standing ovation the first time he met the team. So I knew that, I, I mean, I knew it beforehand because he'd been my mentor. I worked for him in Montreal and Kansas City with the Chicago Blitz. So I knew what he was about, but they didn't. And he bonded with them immediately. And, and, and the, the, uh, the nice thing about the book and the thing that I learned um, across the board, you know, obviously I knew what Marv could do and I knew what Tony could do. But I hadn't. I, I was a, I was friendly with Don Shula. We were good friends, as a matter of fact. But I'd never worked with him, so I'd never seen him with the team. We worked together on a competition committee for close to ten years, maybe more, and uh, and became great friends. Same with Paul Brown, but I'd never seen him with with the team. And in talking to the players, I realized, wow, you know what? For the players, the head coach is the be all and end all. Everybody else is 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 in distant second because he controls their destiny. He controls their careers. He controls their earning power. He controls uh, what their legacies will be as players. So, um, I mean, that was astounding to me when you hear, you know, Hall of Famers like Terry Bradshaw talk about how rough his relationship was with Chuck Knoll and how how it you know what what a burden it was for him. Um, or on the other hand, Mike Haynes, you know, talking about Al Davis recruiting him or, or people talking about Bill Walsh, Steve Young talking about Bill Walsh, how he craved Bill Walsh's um, praise and, 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 uh, and, and involvement with him. Um, that, that, that was really eye-opening for me. You know, speaking of Marv, you tell a great story, I think, about Marv, uh, Fairly early in his tenure with the Bills, you know, many coaches taking over a, a new job would want to assert their uh, authority, and I'm the boss. And and you tell a story about Marv talking to his his players about turf shoes, and he says, "Hey, make sure you pack turf shoes." He wasn't saying uh, you're, you're going to get fined if you don't have turf shoes. You must have turf shoes. He said, "Hey, we're playing a road game. You may need your turf shoes. You may want to bring them." It sort of to me signaled the way Marv operated. Right? He he. He treated these guys like, well, you make the decision, but I'm strongly suggesting that that you pack your turf shoes. He thought it was important to send that signal, didn't he? Yes, it, and and his 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 way of of teaching players and getting them to do the things he wanted them to do was by encouraging them to do the right thing rather than threatening them when they did the wrong thing. Right. And and you know the thing he said was, look, we you know we want you to do your best. We want you to put your best foot forward, no pun intended. And of course, everybody laughed. He always had a joke interspersed in there somewhere. And, and they said, you know, please make sure you remember, pack those turf shoes. Let's don't get caught in a bind here. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, you know, <laughs> there, there's a, a, a thousand other coaches who would say, if you don't pack your shoes, you're not dressed. I guarantee it. 
you know, and, and, and half the guys aren't listening and the other half, you know, half of them might forget, you know, the old story in the, in the military, 10% of the people never get the word, you know, with Marv, he always found a way to make sure everybody got the word and got it in a positive way. You, you worked closely with Tony Dungy in the Indianapolis Colts. You mentioned how uh, Dungy and Marv may be the two best teachers you've ever been associated with. What other traits did they share? What made Tony Dungy oh, a little bit like Marv Levy? They were, uh, they were identical in many ways. Um, I, I, I think I tell the story in the book. I went down to talk with Tony the day after he was let go in Tampa Bay. And, and it was really a cr- recruiting trip. We, we just, Jim Mercer said, go get him, sign him. Let's make him the coach of the Colts. And uh, so we ended up, Tony says it was eight hours. I, to me, it's more like five. <laughs> I know, we, but we're having a great time because we're talking football. And, and in, in one case, I said to him, take me through what you would do from the start of OTAs until, until we get to the opening game. And uh, so he started to talk and, and he got to training camp and, and all of a sudden he stopped and he said, did I say something funny? And I said, no, no, why? And he said, well, you're, you're, you're sort of smiling and kind of laughing. I said, oh, excuse me. I said, I've heard this all before verbatim from Coach Levy. This is exactly the way Coach Levy prepared the team. <laughs> and, and, and from that time forward, we knew that, you know, not only were we friends and colleagues, but we saw the football world through the same set of eyes. Hey, Bill, I guess I didn't realize till I read this in, in uh, Super Bowl Blueprints, Dungy was a, was a quarterback as a player. And, um, and actually, um, Peyton Manning cites that as a reason why he worked so well under Tony Dungy, who I thought, and I guess had a reputation as more of a defensive-minded coach, huh? Yeah, and there's even more to it than that. Tony was uh, uh, um, a, a modern-day quarterback playing at Minnesota in the 1970s. Uh, he, he was he was a, a, a guy who extended plays. He, he was a, a, a you know terrific runner. Um, I think he was Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and he was perfect for the Canadian game in those days. Um, the NFL used quarterbacks who were in the pocket. Think Dan Marino, you know, right. Norm Van Brocklin, etc. Whoever Joe Ferguson. Uh, and there wasn't room for players like Tony. And Tony's, you know, six feet tall. He's not six one. You know, he's not six three, six four. Not not typical. Not the prototype. So, I was a young scout, and um, and went to see him play and filed a report on him. And and Marv read the report. And I talked with the personnel director and a little bit with Marv. And and, and we had an older quarterback in Montreal named Sonny Wade. So it was time to get a new one. And Warren Moon had come from, from Washington the previous year, I think, to the Edmonton Eskimos and was a perfect fit. And so Marv said, well, I'm going to go and see if I can't recruit Tony Dungy to come here and play quarterback in Montreal. So he did. And uh, Tony recounts that it was, a, it was a tough call. But in the end, Tom Moore, who was Tony's football godfather, who had recruited him to Minnesota, ultimately left Minnesota and went to the uh, – Went in, and, and by the way, Tony may have been the first black quarterback. No, he, he wasn't the first black quarterback. Michigan State had one. He was the first black quarterback, second black quarterback to play at, at, at Minnesota and, uh, and, and loved Tom and still does to this day. So Tom 
recruited Tony to be a DB at Pittsburgh and said, you know, you'd be better off in the National Football League than you will in the Canadian League. You'll make more money. So he elected instead of going with us in Montreal, he elected to go to to go to Pittsburgh. But fate put us together at a later time in life. Yeah. One more uh, team that uh, is dealt with in in the book, uh, Super Bowl Blueprint, the Raiders. And um, you talk a lot about Al Davis and Al Davis, uh, I guess now, maybe more than ever, has a reputation as sort of a, uh, you know, a, a rebel, a firebrand uh, against the league in so many ways. But in the in the oral history that you compile about the Raiders, it struck me how what a good coach he was, what an innovative coach he was and how, how well regarded he was by some some pretty important people, Ron Wolf, uh, uh, Haynes, and others. They, they speak about Al Davis on almost reverential terms. Oh, yeah. Ralph, uh, Al is a, uh, is a larger-than-life figure in, in the eyes of virtually every Raider. Um, he was the driving force behind the franchise. It was, it, was a, it was about ready to fold, actually, when he went there as the head coach. He'd been the receiver coach at um, – at uh, the San Diego Chargers under Sid Gilman, who is Sid Gilman's the father of the modern passing game. He's the the grandfather of the West Coast offense, if you will. Uh, Bill Walsh actually worked with him in in, in San Diego for a period of time. Um, and so what Al learned about the passing game, he learned from Sid Gilman. And, uh, and so he installed that. And, and, a, and a big part of that was the deep passing game, a seven-step drop, throw it down the field. Al loved that. And he loved speed and receivers. And so he, he, Al was all football man, start to finish. He was also a great businessman because uh, he never owned a majority stake in the Raiders. He owned a minority stake and a, and, a, and a very small one. But throughout his life, till the day he died, he was the driving force in the Raiders and then ultimately followed Paul Brown's advice and acquired chunks of it as time went by. Rather than get paid financially, he got paid in Raiders stock and, be, and became, uh, in effect, the, uh, the, the real owner. But he, he wasn't for a long period of time. It was just the strength of his personality that, that kept the thing afloat. And a uh, great recruiter. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul McGuire, who's a mutual friend of ours, joked and loves Al, uh, jokes about the fact that when Al recruited him to the Citadel, um, Paul was the first guy that Al ever lied to. <laughs> That's, <just a> <laughs> That's a great story. Uh, because I think he told him he could play fullback or something like that. Okay. <laughs> In any event, uh, Al was a, a heck of a competitor, but he created that. He literally created from whole cloth and, and, and ashes that that Raider dynasty and, and the Raider way of doing things, which still exists today. Um, and uh, and one of the things that he did was create a really tough, hard nosed football team. And Joe Green, who other than Aaron Donald, I think is. Aaron, let me phrase it another way. Aaron Donald is in Joe Green's league and no one else is. Joe Green was the greatest defensive tackle ever to play. Merlin Olson's in that group too, excuse me. So um, Joe Green says, we would not have been the Steelers, the Steel Curtain, this fearsome defense, were it not for the Raiders. Because the rivalry with the Raiders superseded 
everything that they did. Wow. It's sort of like, you know, you play it forward. Our Colts in Indianapolis. Yeah, Billy Cowher's Steelers were great. No question about that. The Chargers were a really good team. But the Patriots were our rivals. Yeah, that, that superseded everything. Why no Patriots among your the eight teams you discussed in the book? Why well, we, there were two teams that we wanted to put in that we could for, for different reasons. The 85 Bears, for one thing, um, they, they only had a brief one, one Super Bowl, a brief run. Sure. But it, it, was, it was so dominant that we really wanted to do it. But when you stop and think about it, there are not a lot of people around today that were part of that, including the driving force, Buddy Ryan. And Coach Ditka, neither of them are, Buddy's gone and, and Mike is not in great shape. So, um, you know, that kind of precluded that. Sure. And, uh, and then with the Pats, when we wrote this book, Tom and, and it, it was still playing and Bill's still coaching. So it, unless they're going to give you lots and lots of time, you don't have, a, you don't have anything, you know. Yeah. And, and furthermore, all that they've done requires – even more full-length books on their own. And, and I'm sure there'll be more forthcoming when, when those guys, Tom's retired or ostensibly retired, and when Bill finally hangs it up, I'm sure they'll do books as well. I think you addressed this. One more question about the book in particular. I think you already answered this, so I was going to ask you about common themes relating to the eight teams you did, um, you did study. You mentioned coaching already, but is there anything else or anything almost as important as coaching that kind of tie all eight teams together? Oh, yeah. The template is clear. Uh, number one, have an owner who's supportive of what you're, you're going to do and recognizes that he has to make a commitment financially to get it done. It doesn't matter what era you play in. You still have, you still have to make that commitment. Um, it doesn't mean you waste money, but you, got, you do have to make a commitment to get it done, i.e. Jim Kelly with the Bills, highest contract in football at the time that we signed it. Um, and, and then the owner has to believe that the football people can get it done and, and, and not meddle, not get in the way, not listen to outsiders, um, you know, believe in his football people and support them. Secondly, you have to have a general manager who's in sync with the coach who can bring in players that fit the coach's system. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with passing on a player who uh, the cognoscente may think is a surefire draft choice. You should take this guy here and, and, and then turn around and take somebody else, i.e. Edger and James instead of Ricky uh, Williams, because Edger and James is the better fit for what we wanted to do. Um, that was in Indianapolis, as an example. So, um the GM has to be able to do that. They have to be in sync. They have to be on the same page. They have to share the same vision and philosophy for the team. And then the coach, as I mentioned before, has to be a great communicator, a great teacher, a great emotional connector with the team, a great organizer. And he has to, all these winning teams had a system of football that was unique to their time. It was, it was new, unique. In Joe Gibbs' situation with the Redskins, born out of necessity, they went to the two tight end, one back offense because they had to block Lawrence Taylor. They couldn't block him with anybody, with anybody but a double team. Yeah. So 
he, he invented that. He was a Don Coriel disciple. He was a, he was a, 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 you know, a Coriel offense guy, throw it all over the place, who changed completely because of the circumstances that he found himself in with the Redskins and won three, three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks. Uh, truly, a, but perhaps the, great, the, the greatest coach who doesn't, you know, isn't on that Mount, Mount Rushmore, he, he should be. He's a, Joe is an incredible coach. In the book, uh, Super Bowl Blueprints, you deal with building uh, the franchises, mostly from the ground up. And and that's got to be fun for you. And you actually just recently got involved with the Chicago Bears and their a selection of, of a new head coach, uh, uh, Matt Eberflus. Talk, tell me about that and, and what you get out, what kind of kick you get out of helping a team pick the right architect for their, for their franchise. Yeah, well, with the Bears, uh, they were looking for a new GM and a, and a new head coach, so we conducted uh, both searches, and um, it was it was fun. Boy, it was you know because you're think about this. You and I have done this a lot it, during during the time that I've come to know you. Um, you know, we sit around, we talk football, and when you're talking, there's no nothing more fun than talking football. Yeah. So in this case. We, we, we had a committee of five people, George McCaskey, the owner, who was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Teddy Phillips, who was their president and CEO. Um, uh, their, their, uh, uh, Tanisha Wade, who is their diversity person. And Soup Campbell, who is their player uh, uh, relations person. And uh, the five of us worked together and conducted every interview. And we interviewed um, 24 people wow. for, for both jobs. So that was a lot of work, <laughs> yeah. but it was, it was fun. And I learned a heck of a lot because we talked to uh, a lot of candidates who were new and up and coming, who, whose names I knew, whose faces maybe I knew, but I, I didn't know personally because I'm a, two generations removed from them, really, when you stop and think about it. And, and we chose uh, Ryan Poles as the general manager who had been in Kansas City uh, through three regimes, actually got promoted up the ladder through three regimes, which is a pretty impressive, uh, impressive feat. Uh, and then he, in turn, uh, chose uh, Matt Eberflus, who we had interviewed and was very high on. We gave him a, 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 you know, a list of names and said, you know, you pick and, and, and add any that you wanted to. And he, he talked to uh, three people and chose Matt, which was terrific. But it was a great experience because it gave me some insight into modern coaching thinking, um, modern personnel thinking, um, what Paul Brown used to call the eternal verities, the eternal truths of football are still true today, just as they were in 1946 when he started the Cleveland Browns. Um, you still have to block, you still have to tackle, you still have to move the ball. The quarterback is the most important guy. You still have to be disciplined. You still have to play great defense. You still have to have good kicking game. But now instead of doing it within the hash marks and with two tight ends, or as in Paul Brown's day with just one flanker and two backs in the backfield, you now do it with empty backfields and five wide receivers and four wide receivers, and you use 53 and a third yards of the field and yeah. about 60 yards of it down the field. Yeah. But the, the, the basics of the game are still the same. You, you played a similar role, I believe, five years ago in helping the Bills select Sean McDermott as their head coach. Sean has had tremendous success here. 
What did you see five years ago in Sean McDermott that uh, led you to think that he might be a good a good pick for the Bills as head coach? Well, my, my, my role was nowhere near as formal as it was with the Bears. Um, but I did talk to Terry from time to time about the, the whole process and checked in with him from time to time. I, I as you as you know, I, I live now in Charlotte, outside Charlotte, North Carolina. So I had seen Sean as a defensive coordinator here with the with the, the Carolina Panthers. And at that time, I was broadcasting games for ESPN radio. They had an ESPN game of the week. In fact, you and I were in Kansas City for a terrific game that, yep. that Sean coached. And that might have been his first or second year. I can't remember which one it was. First year. Yeah. 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 So uh, I I knew Sean well. I knew his coaching style well. I I knew how highly he was regarded by Ron Rivera. I knew the background that he'd had with Jim Johnson at Philadelphia. Um, And and so it was clear to me that he was going to be a head coach. There was no two ways about that. Now, you never know. Uh, what a guy's going to be like when he's when he when he becomes a head coach. Um, but I'd seen enough of him to have a lot of faith and, and belief that he was he was going to be good. And I shared that with Terry, and I'm sure he heard that from a number of other people, not just me. And uh, and he made the right choice. He made the right choice, and and ultimately that's to his credit. And Sean has turned out to be phenomenal. Um, the minute that he and Brandon began to put the program together, and I still talk to both of them you know, fairly frequently um, and root for them, obviously. Uh, it, it was pretty obvious that they were doing things, if not exactly the same way we did, awfully close. <laughs> you, you can see a lot of similarities. And I, see, I said it to you that day in Kansas City, and you kind of laughed, but it's proven to be true. And I hope it's not a burden for Sean, but I mean, he's, he and Marv are very, very, very similar. That day in Kansas city, I was going to bring that up. And, and I was think I'd look back at it uh, yesterday, you know, going into that game, it was around mid season, Sean McDermott's first year, the bills had lost three in a row. They were coming off a terrible demoralizing loss in Los Angeles to the chargers when Nathan Peterman was just terrible. And, um, I wasn't panicking, but I, I sat down at a cup of coffee with you an hour or two before the game, and, and you consistently said to me, don't worry, Sean's going to be all right. I didn't have as much faith as you did back then, but you must have seen so. You must have known, and they won that day and went to the playoffs that year, and almost like the rest is history. But uh, it, it's pretty amazing. I mean, that was maybe the lowest point of McDermott's uh, tenure in Buffalo, and you said, don't worry about it. He'll be fine. Yeah, I, I mean, you, just, you could just tell the way the team was playing, the way it was progressing, the way they were building the organization. And, of course, that day, uh, in, in the last two minutes of the game, he, he outcoached Andy Reid. He went over the timeouts and, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and got them uh, to the finish line. I think it ended with an interception, if I'm not mistaken. They intercepted yeah. the Chiefs at the end of the game to clinch it. It's a tight ball game. And, and he, he – coached the game, managed the game on the sideline as well as, as Marv ever did or anybody that I've seen. And I, I've said to people um, who've asked me recently, media people, you know, um, did it surprise you about what happened in Kansas City in the game this year? And, I, and the answer was yes, because he's, in my view, the, the best game manager in the National Football League. And, and he's, he and Belichick are, you know, 
that's a good matchup head to head. <laughs> and he won two out of three. So, yeah. uh, of course, they have the better team, but, uh, but personnel wise, but uh, uh, do the Bills. But the fact is that um, he's as solid and as steady in every respect of coaching that, that you can find. And uh, um, I'm, glad, I'm glad he's, he's in Buffalo. And, I am uh, he's doing I, a great job. I come, I come to you today with uh, uh, similar worries about the Bills, and in, in, in this sense. Yeah, well, I, I said to you, I said to you in the elevator after the game, "Oh, you have little faith." You know, <laughs> you got me nailed. <laughs> but here's the thing: the championship window is small, and the days of teams going to four consecutive Super Bowls seem like that'll never happen again. Uh, you know, Josh Allen's big money in his contract kicks in in 2023. I just feel like they've squandered a chance to go to and maybe win a Super Bowl, and you don't know how many more chances they get. The window's small now, isn't it? Well, it is small, and it'll be hard to go to four in a row, that's for sure, because free agency chips away at your team, and it chips away psychologically as well, and that's important when you're trying to repeat. Um, But uh, And we went through that. In, in Indianapolis, you know, it was the year after our Super Bowl. We had a great year and a great team and made one coaching mistake, strategic coaching mistake in a divisional championship game and lost to the Jets. We were the better team and should have gone on and didn't. You know, it's just it happens. Um, but um, and with 17 games now, it's going to be even tougher because that 17th game, boy, week 17 this year was really something I, I know. Roger Goodell loved it because there were upsets all over the place. But I've talked to numerous people who said, Ooh, we were so exhausted by week 17. We didn't know which end was up. Yeah. No, nobody's been through that before. They'll adjust, but it's, it's going to make it harder. Is my point. But here's the thing. Go back to 88, uh, 89. I'm sorry. Um, you know, Ronnie Harmon drops the pass in the end zone. Uh, we don't advance past Cleveland in the playoffs, and everybody's feeling exactly the same way you're feeling in Buffalo now. We had the game one and couldn't win. And um, and we went on to learn from that experience, come back the next year, and make, the no huddle was born in the second half of that game. I, re, I, re, I reiterate the story in the book about uh, how Marvin, Ted, and Tom Bresnahan talked on the way home. Yeah. said, hey, maybe we got something here with this offense. It's perfectly suited to Jim. And, uh, and went on and went to the four Super Bowls. So, um, you know, I, I would echo Marv's words, and I know he's, he's said this to Sean and so have I, and to Brandon as well. You know, we're a little bit slain, but not yet dead. We, you know, we'll rise and fight again. Yeah. And, and that's what, they, that's what they're going to have to do. And, and this is a challenge, but uh, they're still a really good team with a really good quarterback. And now they're going to have to re- recast the coaching staff. So that happens. We lost Teddy Marchabroda in, in, in that, and Nick Nicolau in that process, very similar. So um, th- they're facing similar challenges that, that we did. Uh, and they'll overcome, uh, you know, good people, good people win in the end. And, and they're good people. One more issue. I, I know I've kept you a long time here, Bill, but I want to ask you about this year's Super Bowl champions, the Rams. Have they, you know, no drafts in the top 100 uh, players in this year's coming draft. They have 
really spent a lot of their draft capital to build that Super Bowl championship team. Have they come up with a new way to win a championship? Is this going to be the wave of the future? What do you think? Well, I don't know if it'll be the wave of the future. It's a reiteration of the past. We gave up two ones and a two to get Cornelius Pennant, who was the last piece in the defensive puzzle. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and then, and had no number one. And guess who was sitting there at number two? Darwin Thomas. Sure. So, yeah. you know, history does repeat itself. Um, I think Les did a great job. You know, when you're talking about draft choices that the down in the 20s, here are the numbers. Um, in any given draft, there are 18 to 20 players with first round grades. In this draft, there will be fewer, by the way. This is a, despite, uh, depth in this draft because of the COVID six-year players that a great many more players were draftable in this year's draft than it would be normally because uh, they got an extra year in college from the NCAA. But the top of the draft, the first round, is not as strong as it typically uh, is. And so you'll have probably 18 players that with first-round grades, maybe fewer. Um, but in any given year, typically there are 20 with first-round grades. So if you're drafting 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th, you're getting a second-round player. So to give up that kind of a pick, as an example, to the Jacksonville Jaguars to get Ramsey, my heavens, you, you, you wouldn't even think about getting Ramsey unless you're in the top five. Yeah. So you just traded a, a, a pick that was a, a legitimate second-round player to get a guy who's a top 10 player. That's a good trade. They've done a marvelous job. The Rams have second through seventh. Cooper Cup, by the way, who's the best receiver in the league, is a third. So there you go. You know, Andre Reed was a fourth. If you do a good job drafting, you'll you'll make, make up for that. Now, some teams that are lousy drafters, if they try to take that approach, Forget it. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're dead ducks. But if you're, if you're a good drafting team, you, you, can, you can do well. Bill, I've kept you too long. The book is excellent. Thank you very much for this. I really appreciate it. Glad to do it, Murph. Anytime. Hall of Famer Bill Polian. The book is Super Bowl Blueprints. Hall of Famers reveal their keys to football's great dynasties. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with your host, John Murphy. That's going to do it for our podcast this week, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. Thanks very much for tuning in. Thanks to Bill Polian, the Hall of Famer, the former Bills general manager, the author of the book, Super Bowl Blueprints. Wrote it with my buddy Vic Carucci. It is available at Triumph Books, available wherever you get books. I highly recommend it. I've read it. I like it. And it's uh, kind of touches on a lot of NFL dynasties over the years, the Steelers, the Cowboys, there's a lot about the Bills in there, obviously, and uh, other teams as well. Really highly recommended. Super Bowl Blueprints, the name of the book. We are brought to you by Sullivan's Brewing Company from Kilkenny, Ireland. The makers of Sullivan's Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. It's available all over Bills country in bars and stores, available at Wegmans, Consumers Beverages, soon to be available in all 50 states. Thanks to our new partnership with the Global Beer Network, it's available on the internet, as a matter of fact, at Craft Shack Beer. Um, Got to tell you, I, I just shipped a case of Sullivan's to my buddy in Tampa, Florida. I was visiting him a couple weeks ago, decided I would treat him to some Sullivan's. You go on to craftshack.com. It's C-R-A-F-T-S-H-A-C-K, one word, dot com. You can ship all kinds of craft beers anywhere you want, all over the United States. That's how you do it with Sullivan's now, craftshack.com. 
it's really an easy and convenient way to send a nice present to somebody. Send them some Sullivan's beer. I want to thank our producer, Pat Fellball. The NFL 2022 season is ramping up now. The combine underway. Free agency just a couple of weeks away. The official start of free agency, March 14th. Check in with us here for our takes on the Bills over the next several weeks and months as we take the Bills through this uh, offseason. We'll take your feedback, too. We'll take it via email. You can email us at sullivansprofootballkickoff at gmail.com. One word, sullivansprofootballkickoff at gmail.com. We'll take guest suggestions. We'll take your own hot takes on the Bills in the NFL. Maybe you disagree with something we've said or something we've talked about on our podcast. Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you right here next time on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the Bills and the beers.